What's up, future PTAs? I have an important announcement to tell you guys before we get started with today's episode. So, on Sunday, July 23rd at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, we'll be hosting a free masterclass webinar to help students prepare for the October 2023 exam. Now, there will be a recording if you can't make it live, so no worries, but I love doing this webinar because it helps students feel like they're actually going to be in control of their studying and helps students gain more confidence going into the exam and honestly just if you don't even know where to start or what to do, show up to this webinar. It's going to help you just recalibrate yourself, figure out what do I need to do in order to be successful on this exam, and it's a good time. So Sunday, July 23rd at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. To register, the link is in the show notes down below. Take care. Now on to the show. Welcome to the updated version of C7 Complete Spinal Cord Injuries. The original version of this was created in 2021, so I've updated it as it is now 2023 for the most updated information and to make sure I cover it fully. So if you're listening to this, this is the updated version of the C7 Complete Spinal Cord Injury. So let's get talking about it. Um, basically, when we classify spinal cord injuries, there's going to be somebody who makes a lot more money than we do, who's going to be responsible for determining the actual level of the lesion. This can also be determined through imaging and other sources, but pretty much what's happening is it's a big entire um, like sheet that just says, check if they have sensation here, check if they could have MMT here. And it has a list of key muscles tested, um, which are going to make sure that the patient actually is being like named correctly for their injury. So if we're talking about a spinal cord injury, they're going to use the Asia scale. And so that's how all spinal cord injuries are classified. Asia is an acronym for something. I forget what it stands for, but all you need to know is if you see that it's talking about spinal cord injuries. Most of the ones we're going to see on the exam are going to be an Asia scale A. A means all of it is gone. That's why I think A, all of it's gone. That means that it's a complete spinal cord injury. There is no sensation or motor below the level of the lesion. So if we're talking like a T4 spinal cord injury at nipple line, that means they can't feel or move anything below the level of the lesion, below nipple line. There you go. And this is also tested through the sacral segments. And so they're going to test all the way down. It's kind of weird how they do this. So remember myotomal testing, you're like, why does it myotome testing stop at like S2? Because S3, S4, S5 are literally like inside the person's butthole. And so this is where somebody's actually going to be testing those motor levels inside somebody's butthole. And this is a bulbocavernosis reflex. They're going to see how it's working. And they're going to see if they have any innervation of their sacral segments. If they do not, then they know it's going to be complete because there's nothing getting down there. So that's beyond what we need to know as PTAs or what we're going to be doing as PTAs. All we need to know is what does it mean when we're at a C7 spinal cord injury level? All we need to know is that the patient has at least a three out of five MMT for their triceps because the triceps are the key muscle tested to determine spinal the C7 spinal cord. Wrist, fle- wrist extensors will be for C6. Elbow flexors will be for C5. Finger flexors will be for C8. And then finger abductors, so the intrinsics of the hand will be for T1. That's how they'll test it. They're going to find the key muscles at the upper and lower extremity, and that's going to be how they determine the functional level. So basically with a C7 spinal cord injury, they have at least three out of seven MMT for their triceps, which means that they can lift their triceps and extend their elbow against gravity. Maybe without, maybe they can't do it without any resistance, but they can at least move it enough for it to be considered a three out of five. 
That also means that at the C7 spinal cord level, they need to have full sensation of their middle finger. You'll say C7, you're not getting into heaven, flipping everybody off. That's where they will be testing along the C7 dermatome. They're going to test pain and temperature. So they're going to poke you with the, the light and poke you with the dull. And then they're going to see, can you feel warmth? Can you feel coldness? Can you feel that there? Then they're going to test vibration, proprioception, two-point discrimination, and fine touch. Um, and then they want to make sure that they're good. So they'll get two points for sensation. One will be pain and temperature. And then the other will be vibration, proprioception, two-point discrimination. It's because those are the two sensory pathways that carry information to the brain. So they want to make sure both of those are intact and that they have at least three out of five MMT at the key muscles tested for that level. And if they do, awesome, cool. That's the spinal cord injury level because it's the highest level where you have full sensation and at least three out of five motor. So remember that. If they have sensation at the middle finger, but nothing at the pinky, then it's considered C7 because pinky would be C8. Make sense? So that's how they'll do spinal cord injuries. Fun fact. So I figured I'd go over that first before we go deeper into things. Um, there are other Asia scale levels. Let me just go over those real quickly. B is a type of incomplete spinal cord injury. So anything B through E is going to be incomplete except for E. E means everything is there. E is normal. E is fine. That means you're all good to go. There's no change. All sensory motor functions are normal. B, C, and D are going to be types of incomplete. B is going to be, you have sensation, but not motor. C, as in cat, is going to be, um, you'll have some motor and sensory, but most muscles are not working at three out of five. So motor, more so motor rather than sensory. And then D is going to be, you have um, most of your motor functions preserved below the level of the lesion, but they're around three out of five. So they're weakened below the level of the lesion. So that's really, you don't really need to know those like B, C, D, and E. A is the absolute most important one to know, but I figured I'd go over the other ones because this was something I wanted to add on to this lecture because people had a lot of questions and I just want to let you know, you might see people like this in the clinic. The boards isn't really going to show it. If they say that they have some sensation and no motor, but like some motor and no sensation, all you need to know is that the boards will classify that as an incomplete spinal cord injury. And then you have to figure out which one it is because you have anterior cord, posterior cord, Cotta and Brown's cards. Those are your like main four. Oh, and central cord. So you got your five incomplete spinal cord injuries. So then you have to figure out which one is which. And we have videos for that as well. So let's talk about the anatomy. Anatomy is the spinal cord. We have our myotomes, which will be C7 in this case. Now we're going to be specific to the C7 spinal cord injury. Myotomes, C7 controls the triceps. C7 also going to be the dermatome for the middle finger. C7, you're not getting in heaven. That's how I remember it. So how does one get a spinal cord injury? There's a bunch of different ways you can um, get one. A lot of times it's going to be an accident and of some sort. So a uh, motor vehicle accident, super common, uh, getting hit from behind, getting hit from the side, somewhere in such a way that the spinal cord like basically severs itself uh, due to impact. That's a very common way you're going to see that. You're also going to see some hyperextension, hyperflexion injuries and whatnot. Um violence as well gunshot wounds stab wounds people getting shot in the like upper neck and stuff like that not not ideal um falls are very common in the elderly remember their bones are very brittle so they can break so if they fall just the right way 
um, land on their back or something, what can happen is they can get a really bad spinal cord injury because they've broken their bones and their bones have splintered and severed their spinal cord. There is a much higher prevalence of spinal cord injuries in men, and it's more common in white people. So the peak incidence is between 15 to 30 years old. And why am I saying this? Because the boards might ask you, who is most likely to get a spinal cord injury? And it's going to be a young white man, college age, let's just say. That's most common because that prefrontal cortex is not developed yet. And um, just from societal, socio, like observations, men tend to do more high-risk activities than women. So that's why I've seen questions on practice tests that say who is the most common of these, this demographic to get a spinal cord injury. And like the, the answer was like a 30 or like a 25 year old white male. That's why I want you guys to know those demographic things, especially for a lot of other conditions on the boards, they might show up demographically just so then you realize like there are certain populations that are more susceptible to things than others. Um, Acute stage would be what's happening when the person immediately gets a spinal cord injury. So it's important for us to understand what's going on. Um, at this point, you also need to understand that if they're in the acute stage of a spinal cord injury, like it just happened, we are not treating this person. We are waiting until they are stable to treat them. Like the PT can't even come in for the eval until they're stable. So, but it's important we know what happened. So they'll go into what's called spinal shock right after the um, injury. And that's what I told you about how they can't fully determine what spinal cord level somebody is until a couple weeks later, because the spinal shock causes the entire spinal cord to flare up and squeeze in on itself. So it's just a severe amount of inflammation that basically constricts the spinal cord. And so you can imagine at that level, if you have spinal shock, what happens is everything below the level of the lesion stops. So it's like, even if it's an incomplete spinal cord injury, what happens is you'll see total flaccid paralysis below the level of the lesion. So like C8 and below, if we're talking about C7, and it's not doing anything. Nothing's moving, no sensation, nothing's happening. So what happens is usually when they're in this like very acute stage, they need to be stabilized, usually with surgery. So they'll take spinal rots, put them in there. Um, maybe they need to put like a just a mobilization kind of thing up over the spinal cord basically they're trying to keep this the whatever damage that occurred to stay at that level of damage and not get worse so that's pretty much what surgery will need and then if it's like a motor vehicle accident obviously they might have like fractured ribs collapsed lungs um difficulty breathing other bones broken so pretty much they need to stabilize them and that's going to be the emergency department doing that if it's a traumatic injury um, once the person's stable, the things that we're going to have to be aware of that might happen will be spasticity because remember, a spinal cord injury is considered an upper motor neuron pathology because it affects the spinal cord. The brain and the spinal cord are going to be upper motor neuron. Lower motor neuron will be like the cerebellum and then everything else like, like peripheral nerves, cranial nerves, all that stuff is going to be lower motor neuron. So with that being said, the patient's going to have all this stuff happening. So they might have autonomic dysreflexia. That's something that happens with anybody who has a T6 spinal cord injury and above. And I think I'm going to talk about that in a, middle, in a minute. They're unable to thermoregulate, which means that they're going to need blankets or like the heat turned on and then like turned off. And they can't thermoregulate anymore just because they don't have that sensation of that temperature. Remember, we have pain and temperature running together. They don't have that. That's the spinal thalamic tract. That one's not working anymore below the level of the lesion. So they don't have thermoregulation. 
Um, they'll have difficulty breathing, especially um, because they don't have the muscles that will assist with inspiration. So like the external intercostals to lift everything up and move out to the side, they don't have those anymore. Um, they Remember, they do have the diaphragm, C3, C4, C5. So at C7, the diaphragm is fully innervated. So they can breathe fine. They don't really need to be on a vent, but they will have problems maintaining an upright posture to get full air in. And that's why a lot of spinal cord injuries can be considered restrictive lung diseases. Um, skin breakdown is the biggest concern for spinal cord injuries, like the number one concern because they can't move. They can't feel like you and I can feel if we've been sitting on our ass too long. You're like, Ooh, I'm starting to feel like it's getting red down there. Like I should probably stand up and move. They can't feel that. So, um, they need to be taught behaviorally okay, it's time to move, like time to, you know, reposition yourself, retransfer and everything. Um, and then the triceps. Oh my Lord, the triceps, the most important thing was the C7 spinal cord injury triceps allows them to perform transfers independently. So that's one of the most important things to work on. So how are we treating it? So safety first, we want to make sure that the person stabilized. That's pretty much what it is with that. Um, and we want to make sure they're not developing life-threatening situations like autonomic dysreflexia, which happens with any spinal cord, which can happen with any spinal cord injury at T6 and above. Um, this is due to a severe elevation in blood pressure. So what you'll see is patients are sweating profusely, looks really bad, their blood pressure is skyrocketing, and usually there's a reason why it's happening. Uh, number one is to sit the patient up. By sitting them up, you automatically drop their blood pressure. Think of like with orthostatic hypotension, if you set them up, their blood pressure drops. Use that to your advantage in this situation. Set them up, make sure that they're not passing out. Um, then what you're going to want to do is you're going to want to check the catheter or any other tubes to see if there's a noxious stimuli. Also see if like the bladder's full or something like that. Nine times out of 10, if somebody's experiencing autonomic dysreflexia, it has to do with the catheterization of the patient um, or like the bladder and stuff like that, because there's people that at least... Uh, it's kind of cool. I've been seeing it on TikTok. Like a bunch of people with spinal cord injuries have been talking about how they can tell when they have to use the restroom, even though they don't have like that sensation of like their bladder being full. They're like, I feel like I start sweating and I like kind of start breaking out into a little bit of hives and stuff like that. And I like feel like I'm almost getting a headache. And then I realize like, oh, I need to go to the bathroom. Like that's autonomic dysreflexia, like on a milder case, but you'll see it in the hospital, especially if it's in like the early stages. So make sure you understand what it is. Number one, set them up. So first things first, set them up, then check to see what's causing the problem. Is it a catheter or something like that? Um, so essentially it's the opposite of orthostatic hypotension. With orthostatic, you sit them down and then see what's going on, see if that helps. So just remember that. Patients with spinal cord injuries can have both. Isn't that fun? They can have both. So just be aware of that. That's why they'll put stockings on people's um, like legs who have spinal cord injuries or an abdominal binder to help keep their blood pressure normal because they don't have like the muscle pumps of their legs to keep the blood circulating. So what it does, it helps with venous return to the heart. Um, so obviously most important things, check for skin breakdown, teach weight shifting and positioning techniques. If you see like, what's the most important thing for a spinal cord injury? And one of the answers is like weight shifting, repositioning, bed mobility, all of that stuff. That is the answer. That is 100% the answer. That is the most important thing because if your patient's weak, eh, we can work on that. If your patient has a wound that got infected and then they got sepsis and died, we can't work on that. See what I mean? Like that's the most important one. Uh, blankets for when they get cold, you're going to help with airway clearance techniques as well. There's different ways the patient can learn to brace themselves, to sit themselves up, to like cough going forward, to like 
there's so many cool things they can do for airway clearance that are really important because remember they have trouble breathing because they're kind of unable to use every single muscle that you and I without a spinal cord injury can use to help with coughing and clearing their airways. So PT interventions, biggest thing, just patient education. As I said, weight shifting and whatnot, super, super, super important. Uh, compensatory techniques for transfers, mobility, and ADLs. So this is where you talk about the head-hips relationship. You want spinal cord injury patients to use compensatory techniques whenever they need to. Like, you know how, like, when we're watching a patient reach their arm overhead and we don't want to see them, like, hike their elbow or help hike their shoulder up to try to get their arm up. People with spinal cord injuries, stuff like that is okay because they're not going to get function back in certain parts of their body. So whatever they're able to do and however they're able to compensate, we encourage it. We're like, let's get it done safely. You know what I mean? Obviously safe compensatory techniques, mobility, ADLs, get them back to being able to, you're going to work along occupational therapy for this as well. Just being able to have the patient learn how to navigate their new environment um, with their new diagnosis. Tricep strengthening is great because it's going to help the patient become more independent with transfers, but you also want to work on all your other upper extremity muscles, like to help you, uh, teach the patient how to transfer and whatnot. So that's super important. And then, as I talked about before, the head hips relationship, head going out like same, same or opposite direction of the hips. So if you see this as like, which one of these should you utilize for transfers with a spinal cord injury patient, head hips relationship is definitely very helpful. Um, trying to get the patient to um, kind of throw, it's basically like when they do slide board transfers, they're kind of like throwing their body down it, but it works. It works. And then pressure relief, as I said before, wheelchair mobility. Remember the primary way that anybody who has a spinal cord injury, injury I don't care if it's like L5 or C4, like whatever level of spinal cord injury a patient has, their primary way of getting around the, in the world will be a wheelchair. Like you're not going to have a patient go to the grocery store using bilateral HKFOs with axillary crutches to try to walk around. Like they might be happy to do that for like five steps, but like think about going up and down grocery store aisles. It's not happening. Put them in a wheelchair. They're happy as a clam. La, 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 living their best life. Can they do certain ambulation activities with certain assistive devices and orthotics and whatnot? Yes. Is it extremely energy consuming and takes a lot of time and not good for the patient? Also, yes. So put them in a wheelchair. It's the easiest way they can get around. They're happy. They're independent. They're good to go. People with spinal cord injuries can drive. I think the highest level you can drive is like a C6. You just keep going. They're just going around. So get them a wheelchair. Super important. That's going to be how they keep their independence in society. And then a bowel and bladder program, uh, PT is an OT is going to help set this up. But a lot of patients will participate in what's called intermittent catheterization, which is going to allow the patient to uh, self-catheterize. It kind of looks like a little tampon. It literally comes in the same like little like bag wrap as like a tampon. Open it up, catheterize themselves, put it back in the bag, throw it in the, literally the same place. It's like the same thing as a tampon, but instead of using it for your period, you would be using it to catheterize yourself and then to use the restroom. And so intermittently means like every couple of hours they go to the bathroom and empty their bladder just like you or I would, but they can't feel it. So they just put themselves on a timer and it's good to go. And that usually works for most people and it's super independent for them as well because they can do it themselves. So keywords, understanding age of scale A is going to be for a spinal cord injury level. Uh, transfers, the patient at C7 are as independent with transfers. The key muscle tested is the triceps. 
uh, functional abilities will be that, like, what can they do at this level? This is the most important thing. What can each level do? This person can independently transfer. This person can independently navigate the world with a manual wheelchair. They can drive. Um, this patient can perform independent weight shifting, stuff like that. They're good to go. So manual feeding, uh, they'll be able to feed themselves because they do this tenodesis grip. So what they'll do is they'll cock the wrists backwards into extension and the fingers curl. So you can do it on yourself. As you go into extension, your fingers curl because they don't have the finger flexors yet because that's C8. You can modify this with different um, techniques. So if you have a hair tie, you can like take your hair tie, put it on the back, back of your hand, wrap it around. It's kind of fun funky how you do it. Um, oh my gosh, I'm like struggling right now. So you bring it around like that and you have to hold it in one hand. And then what you're going to do is you're going to feed your fork through the one if it's a fork. And they're able to do this and then you can hold it like that so you have like a hair tie and then that's how they can help feed themselves so they can do like modified independence with feeding and stuff like that um because they don't have full innervation of all of those muscles down there um and then that's also how they'll be able to grip the catheter to self-catheterize and then young white males that tends to be a major population all right sample question a physical therapist assistant is helping teach a c7 asia scale a patient with functional activities around the home. Which functional activity would be most unrealistic for this patient to perform? One, reaching arm above overhead. Two, push-up transfer from wheelchair into car. Three, gripping a cup with a full fist. Or four, picking up a fork with modification. So I'll give you guys a second to think about that. All right, guys, so the answer is gripping a cup with a full fist. As I just showed you, patient has to do that little modification thing to be able to self-feed. They cannot use a full grip to hold things. They, they can't grip with their finger flexors. Which one's finger flexors, guys? What level? It's C8, C8. So they don't have innervation at C8. So they can't do the full fist. They have to do modification, but they can still pick things up. That's the thing to understand. People with spinal cord injuries are super independent at what they can do, like especially the younger population. They're like, I can do it myself. I got this. So you let them stay independent as long as possible and functional as long as possible. And you encourage further independence as much as they can, obviously offering them help if they need it, but they got it. So reaching arm above overhead, you can actually get your arm somewhat overhead at like C5, C6, you definitely have enough innervation to get overhead and C7, you're pretty good as well. Um, cause you have full innervation of your deltoid. That's really the big one. That's going to help with the overhead and then biceps and everything that gets you overhead, uh, push up transfer. That is literally the hallmark of DC seven. And they can do that. Gripping with a full cup, that, uh, gripping with a full fist, that's C eight, picking up the fork with modification can actually be done as high up as C six. Very good. So now, you know, so review your spinal cord levels and functions and whatnot, and you'll be good. And I'll pretty much like all of this general, like transfers, mobility, all that stuff is applicable for any spinal cord injury patient. So remember that don't let the skin break down and I'll see you on the next one. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the PTA Elevation Podcast. We look forward to continually serving you as you embark on your journey towards becoming a licensed physical therapist assistant. We thank you for your continued support and we'll see you in the next episode.